Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this letter. We thank you for the passion with which which it was written. We thank you, Father, that you've preserved it uh, through all these centuries. And we pray now as we sit in this this school hall this morning, uh, Father, that you might be at work. Take this word and by your Holy Spirit be changing us to be living in that wisdom that Matt just prayed for. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Excellent. Well, I wanted to tell you uh, a little bit, uh, just to start off, about myself. Uh, this is a picture of my, my grandfather. And my grandfather uh, came with his family from uh, South Africa, and they moved to Western Australia, where they cut a farm out of the bush uh, in Western Australia. Uh, they kind of were getting along okay, and then uh, the Great Depression came along, and they had to walk off the farm and literally leave everything. Uh, my grandfather's parents were fairly elderly at this time, and so he had to provide for his sister and his mum and dad. And he had no skill other than the skill of farming, which was now unable to be used. And so he started sweeping out uh, aircraft hangars, uh, just started doing that as, as something, a, a place to be. And over time, uh, people started to, uh, to see that he was diligent in doing that and invited him to sort of find out a little bit more about how to look after the planes since he was practically minded. So he started to look after and maintain the planes. Eventually they said, would you like to have a go at uh, coming up for a flight? Which he said yes. And eventually he learnt how to fly a plane. From that experience of looking after the planes and flying planes, eventually he moved across to Sydney uh, where he helped found uh, Qantas's uh, engineering school. And uh, he worked there for many years until, until his retirement. Now, as a boy, uh, I always looked up to my, uh, to my grandfather and, uh, and thought that flying was fantastic. This is a very dodgy old photograph of me with my grandfather. We went to an open day when they were uh, just releasing the 747-400. And uh, it was a great day for me. I got to walk around Qantas in their engineering things and... Uh, it was just magnificent. Now, as a boy, because my grandfather was a pilot, I'd always wanted to be a pilot. And so my plan was to be a pilot. That's, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, this was probably what I had in mind in actuality, I, uh, uh, I suspect. Um, but uh, but my, So my plan was just, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to be a pilot. And so I worked hard at my maths and I enrolled in physics and I started to you know, think about applying to the Air Force and all that sort of thing. Uh, only, only small problem, uh, I was pretty bad at physics, and uh, if you spin me around twice, I'll throw up. So uh, all, all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, this dream, this plan that I'd sort of had from when I was tiny about being a pilot was just completely gone. It, was, it ended up being completely unrealistic and disconnected from any sense of reality, but it had been my thing that I'd been hoping for and planning on and, and building my life towards, and it it was just kind of gone, pretty, pretty much like that. Uh, we all make plans, don't we? Uh, so, you know, sometimes we're planning for our next coffee. That's the, that's the thing that you're looking ahead to. Uh, some of us might think, look, actually what I'll do is I'll quit the rat race and uh, I'm going to go and, and, uh, and mow lawns, yeah? And I know, I know some people who've done this, you know, gone from relatively high-powered jobs and gone, I'm going to chuck it all in, I'll get a Jim's Mowing franchise and I'll push the mower around and just change my world. So we just go, that's, that's my plan. Or for some of us, uh, planning might be, uh, actually, we're going to London. So the whole thing is you're just focused on 
our plan is our next holiday. That, that's kind of what we're, what we're planning towards. Or some of us, it might be, my whole plan is, whatever it costs me, whatever I have to do, my plan is to put my kids into a good school. It's just about the kids. That's my plan. That's my plan in life. Now, for some of us, it'll be, I want to build a, a magnificent mansion somewhere. We don't know any people like that, do we? Uh, <laughs> We're, we're, lots of us here have been thinking about that sort of thing. Plan is, it's the home. That's, that's the thing that we're working towards. Or for some of us it might be, <laughs> we've come to that point in our life where we're ready to just stop doing all this silly stuff, uh, get a large four-wheel drive and an even larger caravan and, uh, and just become grey nomads and, and wander around this beautiful country of ours. So we plan, don't we? We plot and plan and scheme. And I think the challenge this morning as we reflect on this bit here from James, it's not that we'll never plan. We, uh, most of us plan in some way. But I think the danger can be that all too often we make plans that exclude or ignore God. We make plans that exclude or ignore God. Some of us might be actively going, na, 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 na. Can't hear you, God. You know, like I, I don't want to know what God thinks about this, Okay because I kind of secretly, quietly know. So I'm just going to shut him out of this planning process and we'll just talk about the financial realities or the importance of laying a great foundation and we'll just keep God entirely out of it, actively. Some of us, though, will plot and scheme and plan and we'll do it thoughtlessly. But By which I mean we'll do it without reference to God. We'll just be, if I can say it this way, Practicing atheists. It's overstating it, perhaps. But in, in a planning sense, God is irrelevant. He doesn't even factor into our discussion, our thinking. I want to suggest to us this morning that that's not good enough, but you already know that, isn't it? That's not good enough. And we want to see why as we turn our attention to this passage here uh, in James. Well, let's have a look. We're, uh, we're at James chapter 4 uh, and verse 13. And uh, James goes straight to the heart of this here in the way that he opens up. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Now it's worth saying, uh, you can't be dirt poor and say that, can you? If you're dirt poor, first of all, you probably can't leave the, leave the farm that's providing all the food you need to live. Uh, we, we were across in Tonga uh, on a mission trip some years ago. And uh, as you travel around outside of town, you s- just see farm everywhere, farms everywhere. And, and town is kind of a little bit glorified, but, you know, this clump of buildings. And I said to some of the people, you know, the supermarkets aren't really big. What does everyone do to eat? And they say, you see all these farms around the outside? People in town own them. That's where they get their food from. And if they're lucky, they'll have some left over to be able to sell to someone else. Now you think about that level. No one there is packing up tomorrow and jetting off to another city to make money. They're literally just scraping by. So to have the resources to say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, We'll spend a year there. Notice how simple it is. We'll spend a year there. It's a really tight plan. We'll go to London for a year, make some money. Uh, we'll spend a year there and we'll make money as we carry on business. 
Uh, there's this power, there's a, a, an assumed riches, I think, uh, in this group of people. And the riches are the danger, if I can say this quietly. The riches are the danger. I'll tell you why. I think that in the end, we believe that we can control our life through our money. Okay? And let me see if I can explain to you why I think that's the case. When we're tossing up, will I make that decision or this decision? It's based on, do I have the resources to be able to do this? And you might say, either we've got it in the bank, or we've got some assets that we can cash in, or I've got a killer skill I know will give me lots of money, so it'll work. Okay? Now, what that means in practice is, I'm able to make, more or less, whatever decision my bank account will afford. Now, the reason that that's so powerful is... I end up being someone who depends on my money rather than on God. My first thought to whether I can or can't do something, should or shouldn't do something, is I'll just just check my wallet. Yep, we should be able to do that. That's no problems. So functionally, functionally, the God that we look to, the one that we depend upon, is actually our financial resources. Can you see this? It gives us a sense of independence. We can do whatever we want so long as our bank account allows. The danger, of course, is that we feel if we've got enough resources, we're pointing our life wherever we want it to go. We're in charge. It's your call. And certainly all the advertising on financial advice and whatever and all those, it's all telling you it's your choice. Go to it. And the reason it can do that is because we maintain the illusion we've got our hands on the wheel because we've got enough cash. I want to think for a second. Does, does anyone, is anyone able to name one of their great-grandparents? Can you name one of your great-grandparents? Yep. Can anyone name all four of their great-grandparents? Well, theoretically, you should have one, two on either side, Matt, is the theory. Great. great. Well, it's probably eight, is it, Matt? Is that what you're saying? Thank you. That'd be a lot. If you can name four, you'll still win the prize. That's all right. Did anyone put up their hand, able to name four of them? You think you can, Nicole? You can go three. Okay, not four. If we made it eight, Matt's very helpfully corrected me. Thank you, Matt. If we made it eight, it'd be impossible, would it? No one would no one be able to do all eight. Um, I just want to point out to you, uh, you're a pretty important person, right? You're a pretty important person. You're probably the most important person that you know. You're at the centre of your life. You hope your family knows you, yep? You hope you're making a real impact in the world, and that's great. I just want you to reflect on the fact that some people who lived a couple of generations before you thought they were pretty important too. And now, as their great-great-grandkids we don't even know their name. Their family, yeah? We're not asking you to remember the people who built, you know, founded MacArthur or something like that. They're family. They're not people from another country or... These are the people that you exist because of and we don't even know their name. Think of how fleeting life is. 
Have a look at James 4.14. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I wanted to read you this quote, and I actually left it down there, so you won't be able to read it from there. It's, uh, it's from a Chinese, uh, a Chinese philosopher who I'd never heard of, but I'll, I'll read you this quote. 100 years is the limit of a long life. Not one in a thousand ever attains it. Yet, if they do, still, unconscious infancy and old age take up about half this time. The time he passes unconsciously while at sleep at night and that which is wasted through awake during the day also amounts to another half of the rest. Again and again, pain and sickness fill up about a half so that he really gets only about 10 years or so for his enjoyment. We ought, therefore, to hasten to enjoy life and pay no attention to death. Allow the ear to hear what it likes, the eye to see what it likes, the nose to smell what it likes, the mouth to say what it likes, the body to enjoy the comforts it likes to have, and the mind to do what it likes, because you will only have ten good years. It's a pretty interesting reflection, isn't it? In the end, it's worth noting that's not a godly reflection, but it is an interesting reflection. You live a hundred years, you might have ten of them that you can do something useful and profitable with. Wow. What is your life? It's a mist, it's a vapour. Here today, gone tomorrow. Now the trick with that is, um, I've been alive all my life. Isn't that, isn't that the trick? So far the track record is good, I keep being alive. So if I think about the future, I assume I'll continue to... Be alive. The Bible's saying here you need to think differently. You need to think that your life can be blown away at any point. At any point. Have a listen to how godly advice is to live. What does God have to say about how we should then live? Look at verses 15 and 16. Instead of all your presumptuous planning, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. You see, we're dependent. We're not independent. We don't get to call the shots in our life. Please plan. It's not about not planning, okay? But you're not the sole person in charge of your life. In fact, your life is held in the Lord's hands. And so instead you ought to say, as you plan and think about the future, if it's the Lord's will... We'll do this and that. It's showing respect to God who is ultimately in charge. So it's not so much that you have to develop a pattern of speech so that every time, I'm going to go to the shops if it's the Lord's will. I plan to get out of bed tomorrow morning at 6.15 if it's the Lord's will. It's not that you have to always say it's the Lord's, if it's the Lord's will. Although, can I just tell you, if you spend a week of doing it, all of a sudden you'll realise how provisional everything you think you're doing is. So if you wanted a physical challenge, maybe you could try it out. Say, if it's the Lord's will, to everything this week for a week and see how you go. You'll probably annoy someone close and dear to you, but 
but, but see how it goes. The, the, point you'll, the point you'll see, though, is all of a sudden my planning and scheming isn't just up to me. It's dependent on the Lord. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You see, we're saying that if it's the Lord's will, well, Matt's been, been, uh, been as we've been preaching through, Matt's been showing us the Lord's will is actually knowable at some level. He gives us godly wisdom. He wants us to live in righteous ways. He wants us to watch our tongue, to look out for the weak, the orphan, the poor, the widowed. We know some things about what the Lord's will is. And so if we live our life like this, if you know the good that the Lord has called you to do and you don't do it, you sin. You sin. Doing good, not seeking pleasure, should be our response. See, the Chinese philosopher says, look, you've only got 10 years, live it up, baby. If today is one of those days when you're feeling good and you're not asleep and you're not, then you should make the most of it, you know? You've only got 10 years, get into it. Godly wisdom says we should seek to do good out of our honouring for God. Can I say there's one more scary part about this? Um, often we'll think that we're good enough for heaven. Not, not very often, because as soon as you have that thought, you're in trouble, right? Because that's prideful. Very good. But often we can think, oh, I must be good enough. I'm doing, I'm doing more good than bad. Anyone had this thought? I used to have it all the time, particularly around Christmas time, and I was trying to work out whether I was going to get lots of presents from Santa. I have been more good than bad this year, I think, on the balance of probability. Do you know what? Getting into heaven doesn't depend on more good than bad. And on top of this, you're more bad than you knew. See what this says here? This is what we call a sin of omission. I know what my sins of commission are. Sins of commission are when I speak wrongly, when I think wrongly, when I do something wrong with my hands. That's a sin that I do. Here's a challenging thought for you. I'm not sure you knew this before. This is a category called a sin of omission. What does it mean? It's a sin of not doing good I should have done. That's huge, isn't it? I should have done it and I didn't do it and now God's telling me because I didn't do it, there's a sin I've done. Man, that's just scary, isn't it? I'm actually in a worse place than I ever knew because there must be good I haven't done. But by the way, by the way, It's not then about just burying yourself until you fall asleep at night exhausted trying to do all the good you can think to do. So it's not the response. But we have seen what godly wisdom looks like. Go and do it. Don't let the godly life, the pursuit of righteousness, the care for the least, the honour of God, be off your agenda. You know it. Don't neglect it. How then should we plan? I think the lesson from this first section here is that we should plan with what I've called open hands. Plan with open hands. See, when I grasp onto my plan, this is what I'm going to do. It won't be taken out of my hands. I'm driving and directing my future. I think what we need to do is we need to prayerfully offer up our plans to God and depend on his will. God, I am planning to do this. I'm taking into account the good you have called me to do, 
the righteous life you've asked me to seek, the way I'm supposed to live with my money. I'm taking all of that into account and here's what I'm planning to do. If you have a different plan to this, I'm open to you changing it. Can you see the difference here? I'm in charge. I'm calling the shots. That's the wrong way. God, I commit my plans into your care as I seek to do what you've shown me is good. You with me? All right. Uh, This next section here will talk a lot about Jesus' return. And uh, I grew up in in Sunday school. Uh, My mum and dad sent me to, to, uh, to Sunday school. It took me. I went from when I was little, and I learned lots of stories about Jesus. Um, I probably learned something about uh, the, the prophets in the Bible and all sorts of stuff. But do you know what? I was in about year nine when I found out for the very first time that Jesus was coming back again. It was a world-stopping moment for me. I just went, what? Someone said, yeah, Jesus is coming back again, don't you know? I said, I've never heard that before. Now, it may have been something about the type of church I was in, and we can talk about that later, but that's not my point. My point was, no one had ever told me. Or if they had, let's let's acknowledge as possible, if they had, it had never registered in my brain. So I knew that Jesus wasn't dead, but that was all I knew. No one had told me that not only was he not dead, that he was at the Father's right hand, and that one day he would return in glory to judge the living and the dead. I had no idea about that. Here's a little bit in Acts where we see, uh, see this. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's spent time with his disciples. They're standing on a mountain and Jesus has just been raised up on a cloud. As the disciples are standing there going, I think that was exactly what they were doing. Uh, it says this. Two, two, two people dressed in shining clothes appeared and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back, and when he comes back, he will be the judge. The judge of the living and the dead. If you've never heard that before, you need to start factoring that into your reality. He's coming back. Now, tell you why that's important. Have a listen to uh, this next little section here. I think really, uh, in this next section, uh, James is going to town on rich people. Uh, It's easy for us, and tempting for us, and me, to stand back and go, oh yes, you should say something to them, God. Whereas I think we need to be wary to actually say, God, maybe you need to say this to me. Okay? Okay? And again, Matt's done some good work uh, previously showing us that we are definitely in the rich category when it comes to this world. So have a listen. Listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Oh, James, tell us what you're really thinking. That's pretty full-on stuff, isn't it? 
The danger is that the rich feel that they're the most important people in society, that they have at their disposal things that give them independence from God and let them call the shots, that their silver and gold are their power and independence. And what what it's saying here is there is misery that is coming on you. The things you trust in will fail and fall. They will fail and fall. There is a sure future. Remember that the, the rich thought, we'll go to this city and do this and that. And the Bible's response is to cut, cut across that and say, actually, your life is a vapour. Everything is contingent on God's will. Don't plan excluding God. Your future is uncertain, is what it said there. But you know what? There is a part of the future that is certain. The part of the future that's certain is that Jesus will come back. And he will call to account those who are trusting in themselves. Here's why the rich are in trouble. Verses 5 to 6. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Wow. That's hectic, isn't it? And you've fattened yourself on the day of slaughter. It's, it's like uh, talking to the cow on the ship across to, you know, Saudi Arabia or wherever it's going and saying to it on the ship, hey, you get lots to eat, don't you? You get lots to eat? Does it stay pretty cool on here? You're on a cruise ship. You are living a good life, aren't you? Can you smell that sea air? You're getting more than enough food. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to go anywhere. It's right there in front of you. Enjoy the cruise ship. Well, it's deeply misleading, isn't it? You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You've lived in luxury. And more than that, it says at the end, you have murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. I guess the question becomes, how have they murdered? What's the story there? What does it mean for the rich to have murdered the innocent one? Uh, I first thought it was tempting to think this must be Jesus. You've murdered Jesus. But I think it's more a category of people who are considered innocent, the lowest, the poor. You have murdered them. How have they murdered them? Have a listen to this little bit here from Deuteronomy 24. So Deuteronomy is one of the first five books of the Bible and it sets up the law for how Israel was to look after the least in the land. So have a listen to this little bit here. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise he may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. If you withhold the wages of the guy who needs it at the end of every day... Eventually, you'll kill him. You with me? So in the process of withholding wages, you've committed murder. Here's a thought on what to do. I actually think this idea of the least not getting paid for the work that they do and that sort of thing actually isn't a million miles away from us. Um, Mandy, uh, reflecting on this passage through the week, uh, sent me a reminder about this, um, this little app 
there's a uh, an app called Shop Ethical, okay? And what it is is uh, a thing for your phone, or it's a website that you can look up. And basically, what it does is it tells you the companies that you can be buying from and what their labour practices are like. Do they employ child labour? Do they uh, pillage the environment? Are they people who have protection laws to make sure that there's a sustainable living wage? All that sort of stuff. And what you can do in the end is you can actually make an informed buying decision based on how these people care for the labourers who are under their control. Now, in the end, you'll end up with a far restricted set of things to buy, if I can say that to you. Um, and what we need to do, I guess, is to weigh carefully how we do that. But I just thought at a practical level, this is a practical thing to do to care for the people who are hired by someone else but whose labour we are using. There's another shop, uh, another website here called fairtradedownunder.com.au which actually talks about um, clothing produced in Australia or sold in Australia. Go there very carefully is all I can say. Uh, the amount of exploitation in the clothes that we use is just staggering. There's some practical things to think about on that regard. Uh, I want to change the tone for a second. Have a look at this. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Uh, it smells really
he eats it in the end. Um, I want us to think for a second about how patient we are. How patient we are. What was the setup there? You can have one now, or if you wait, you can have two. Oh, hard. I know I want to, but there's one right in front of me, and waiting is taking a long, long time. Apparently the kids were four, four years old. I'm surprised that they lasted that long. Um, As an aside, there's a really interesting correlation. They did a long-term study. The kids who were able to hold out, they left them for 15 minutes. The kids who were able to hold out apparently had an incredibly different level of success in life than the kids who ate it. Really interesting. So there's something about patience and forbearance that if you're able to do that, will actually set you in great stead for life. Now that sounds a lot like the wisdom that's actually here. Have a look with me at James uh, 7 to 8, 5, 7 to 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Patience, brothers and sisters, is what is called for. While you're waiting... While you're waiting, this is true, it is going to happen. While you're waiting, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, I want you to think about the fact, imagine the kids knew, imagine there was a window in the door and they could see the lady standing there about to walk back in. Do you reckon they'd be able to hang on for a little bit longer if they could see her standing there just about to open the door? Absolutely. What it's saying here is our judge is standing at the door. Will you be able to be patient until he comes? Tell you what, it's really hard to be patient if you don't believe he's coming. Why would I forgo anything now if I have no expectation that he'll come back? You will have to give an account, you will have to give an account of your life to God. And he will come back and he'll ask you, what have you done with this wisp, this tiny little fraction of time that I've given you? As you know, it says in verse 11, we count as blessed those who have persevered. So we look back and we go, wasn't it awesome? Weren't the prophets awesome? Wasn't Job awesome? Do we know Job? Not Job. You have to persevere in jobs as well. But Job persevered. And we've seen what the Lord finally brought about. We know what happened in the end, don't we? Job hung in there and God massively blessed him at the end of his life after all this incredible hardship had gone through. We know that. And it says here, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What should we do? We should people, we should be the people who work out, is God trustworthy? Do you know in this, in this marshmallow test, there were two different results. They split the group into two, and here's what they did. While they're in the waiting room, the person came and they said, I'm going to bring you some crayons, and walked away. And in one group, they came back and brought crayons, and another group, they came back and didn't bring crayons. They then said, I'm going to bring you uh, a cup of water, walked away, came back. In one group, they came back with a cup of water. In the other group, they didn't come back with a, group, a cup of water. Then they went into the room and sat them down, and they said, if you wait there will be a second marshmallow. Now, which group of kids do you reckon waited better? The kids with the consistent record where the woman came back and showed them that she was trustworthy. 
Where they'd seen that the woman was not trustworthy, basically inside 30 seconds they ate the marshmallow. She's not coming back with one. There's a marshmallow there. I'm eating it up. Here's the challenge. You and I need to work out, is God trustworthy? Does he have a trustworthy record? And if he does, am I prepared to trust him? Am I prepared to trust him? What I want us to do is to plant faith. Keep trusting God in little bits, in little bits, in little bits, in little bits, so that you'll see that he is trustworthy, so that you might be able to wait well for the big promise of his return. Some big points to grab hold of today. God's plan is bigger than yours. It is. And your plan isn't in your hands. They're in his. All right. What are we going to do? Here's what I'm challenging you to do today. I want you to finish up today planning with open hands. Please be diligent. Do your homework. Think about what's best. Consider the good that God has called us to do. Use your riches well. And as you plan, plan with open hands. If it's your will, Lord. Secondly, I want us to wait well for Jesus' return, like the farmer. So if you're a farmer and you plant stuff, and you're impatient, how long do you think you'll uh, last in the farming game? You won't last. The reason that the farmer's a great example of patience is he can't affect the outcome of his crops. Even if you fertilise, you can't make it rain. Even if you sow with a big, huge machine, you can't make it grow. We must learn to wait well. It's out of our hands when Jesus will return. We say over here we want to be a church that's faithful, adventurous, compassionate and enduring. And we have three questions under each of these to help us think about how they should impact our lives. What does it look like to live as adventurous disciples of Jesus? The last question here says, how is the kingdom shaping your time, talents and treasure? In other words, if Jesus is returning, if we know what godly wisdom is, how is that shaping the very practical parts of my life, the way I spend my time, the way I use my talents and what I do with my treasure, with my finances? See, I want our church, in light of all of this, our church here, to be marked by patient, prayerful, enduring. Patient because we'll have to wait. Prayerful because our plans aren't ours alone, they're dependent on God. We need his help. Enduring, we need to last to the end. Here's the verse to finish on. James 5.8 says this, You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Jesus will one day return. I pray that he would find each one of us here today waiting well. Help us, Father, to grow in that godly wisdom, the pursuit of righteousness, the right use of our resources, so that, Father, we won't be merely fattening ourselves for the day of slaughter, but we will, on bended knee, welcome our Lord on the day he returns. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.